chapter 5 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to follow almost all of my text. I left out one verse that I meant to include. We start at verse 11 in the bulletin, and uh, I meant to start at verse 10, so that's my fault. I'm going to start reading at verse 10. If you have your Bible, uh, you can look on. If not, just try to listen carefully. But... um, we're, we're wrapping up, if you're visiting, we're wrapping up a sermon series this morning that we've been in this spring, and we've called this The Habits of Love, and here's what we've been after. There are just some basic core practices, or we could say disciplines, or we could say habits of Christians that are supposed to characterize their lives. And as we have said all through this series, you know, words like duty or habits, or even the word ought or should, those are not bad words. It's, not, it's a good thing to have good habits. The concern is when Christians are doing Christian activities, Christian things, and they don't know how it's an act of love. They just know that Christians are supposed to do this. Like, why do you pray? Because Christians are supposed to pray and God says pray, and it's not something that grows out of love. It's not a response of love. The one that we're wrapping up with this morning is uh, the habit of evangelism. And that word has so many weird connotations to it. And I don't know how that lands with you. It may be something uh, positive to you. It may be something that you identify as, you know what, that's how I came to know the Lord because this friend of mine sort of broached this awkwardness and told me the good news about Jesus. That's how I became a Christian. So you like that word. But it may be that word to you is a weird guy on Main Street who's always trying to hand you something. And um, there's a guy that that for years was always handing me something on Main Street, and I realized I was avoiding him after a while. And so we met and finally worked through that. But but the one we're looking at this morning is is evangelism. Now, before I read our passage, I want to remind you of an episode from Jesus' ministry. I'm just going to be very brief. And a lot of you would know this story. It's a true story. Early in Jesus' ministry, he was in a house, and he was teaching. And the house is packed so that if you got there late, you couldn't get to Jesus. And there was a group of friends who had a mutual friend who was a paralytic. And so they put their friend on a mat, and they carried the mat, And they wanted to take him to Jesus so that Jesus would heal him. And uh, when they got there, it's just, it's too packed. They can't get to Jesus. So they went up on the roof of this house and they tore through the tiles. They tore through the roof and they lowered the mat in front of Jesus. And there's this great moment where Jesus looks down. I mean, I I, ought to have video of the look on Jesus' face and the look on the guy's face looking up, I'm like, you know, this was their idea. And, uh, and he's looking up, and Jesus looks down, and he says, My son, now what do you think the rest of the sentence should be? My son, you're healed. It's not what he said. He looks down, after, after they went to all this trouble, he says, My son, your sins are forgiven. And he's still a paralytic. And Jesus healed him at the end. But there's that moment where... I have forgiven you of your sins, and you still can't walk. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because that is a little window 
into something that I want us all to realize about Jesus. On the one hand, when it comes to meeting what we call people's felt needs, Jesus was literally the man. And when it came to going to the poor and going to bat for the marginalized and feeding the hungry and healing the sick and comforting those who are discouraged and brokenhearted, no one has ever done it like Jesus. When it came to felt needs, he was the man. But that little moment right there is a window into something that we need to know about him. That Jesus' great concern was a need that you can have and you might not feel it. Jesus' great concern, the reason Jesus came to earth was to address a need that you might know about yourself, but you might not, it might not be a, quote, felt need. And as we're looking at this thing called evangelism, I, again, it may have really weird connotations to you. I want to start out and say this. Evangelism is God's provision for people's greatest need to be addressed, even if it's not a felt need. And what, I want to, what my hope is, my prayer is, that this passage can help us do that because that's daunting. Talking to people about their greatest need, especially if they don't even feel it or perceive that they have it, is scary and it's awkward. So how could this passage help us? Let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, I am going to start in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your precious word. There's nothing like it. 
It's more to be desired than gold, more than much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. But, Father, because of our, our condition, our discouragement or our um, just being uh, discouraged or run down or jaded or desensitized or angry because of things that we don't want to let go of, it may not feel or seem that way to us. So would you break through all those obstacles and enable us to hear you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to read a poem that you probably heard at some point in high school. You may not remember the name of it, but when I start reading it, you might remember it. It's called Richard Corey. And uh, this is the kind of poem that high school guys like. It's short, and there's a killing at the end. But, it's, but it is tragic. Uh, this is by Edwin Arlington Robinson. It's called Richard Corey. <clears throat> short poem. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked, but still he fluttered pulses when he said, Good morning. And he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. Now, last stanza. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Now... In our congregation, we actually have some true English scholars, which I love. Uh, I'm not one. So I'm going to make about the most obvious point from that poem that you could make. People are not what they sing. And I know that's stating the obvious, but, you know, sometimes it's obvious And sometimes it's not so obvious because they seem to be such a different way. Richard Corey's are uh, in all kinds of places, but they tend to not be in impoverished areas. Uh, They tend to not be in destitute areas. what, What was the first line? Where did everybody see Richard Corey? Downtown. And um, it may be that you don't know people who are, you know, rich, yes, richer than a king, but I suspect that you work with, live near, uh, are related to people who look like they're doing well. And it may be that you're... At this point, I'm really more speaking to those who are professing Christians. It may be that from what you know from the Bible, you know... You can't judge a book by its cover. You know not all is well, but from people looking like they're doing so well, it may have lulled us into inactivity to think, well, then I guess they're doing well. And in a way, this text is the bad news of the fact that, no, we we are not what we seem. But then it's it's just an avalanche of good news. And I want us to hear both. Now, I want to look at three things. What people are, and I think I've got the right grammar on that. It's not so much who people are, it's what people are. And then what the gospel is, and then what evangelism is, okay? What people are, 
what the gospel is, what evangelism is. And first off, what people are. And I'm kind of having to move quickly, but I, I, I'm going to just keep us coming back to the text to see how Paul is drawing this out. What are people? Look in verse, <clears throat> verse 12. And, and Paul, we're kind of joining, joining a conversation, or not really a conversation, a letter way into it. But he's saying this. Hey, Corinthian Christians, I want you, for the right reasons, not to be ashamed of us. I want you to be proud of us, but not the way the world is proud of people. And then he says this in the second part of verse 12. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And that sounds like a a verse of the Old Testament that you may know, where someone says... Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. And then he says something similar in verse 16. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, what's he saying? You cannot accurately assess who someone is by their exterior, by outward appearance. And you know what? That cuts both ways. Because, I, and I've seen this in my own life, when I think about who in my life, who, just someone in the life that God's given me, who's someone who's not a Christian but might become a Christian, I tend to gravitate toward people who are already moral and they already like me back. And think, man, you're just like one, I mean, if you like me, that's huge. So you're just like one click away from becoming a Christian. But then you look at somebody whose life is just tragic. Or they have just embraced Badness, and you think, uh, well, you know, like, here's a prostitute. Boy, she'll never become a Christian. So it cuts both ways. Well, he looks great, so he could become a Christian. She looks horrible. There's no way she's going to become a Christian. Neither of those hold water biblically. A prostitute makes an awesome Christian, and someone whose life is great has the most to overcome. What people are are creatures that cannot be assessed just by their outward appearance. But there's this other thing. People are creatures who are on trial. Verse 10 again. Again, I'm sorry this is not in the bulletin, but Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is something that comes up all through the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that every man and woman and child at the end, stands before God and is on trial. Now, I have no idea how that lands with you because that kind of judicial language, that kind of legal language about God may be very jarring. You may think, ugh, let's not talk about God in terms of a courtroom, but think about what the Bible is saying. It's saying that this God who made the heavens and the earth the seas and all that they contain. He is emotionally invested in all that he made. He's so emotionally invested that he's going to hold accountable those who tainted it. But who are they? Is it someone else? No, it's all of us. We're all culpable. We will all be on trial. And if, if I'm not loving and often I'm not, or if I'm not saying it correctly, let me quote someone who always was loving and who did say it right. Think about what Jesus said. And it's interesting. He says this right after maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3, 16. God so loved the world. He 
gave His only begotten Son. Two verses later, John 3, 18, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in Him, and He's speaking about Himself in the third person, whoever believes in Me is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because He has not believed in the only Son of God and that's such a weird thing for the Bible to say. I mean, it's, I, it's all right for us to acknowledge that. That people can be going about their lives, they can just be trying to, get, um, trying to get employed, trying to make friendships in a new town, trying to get a child from A to B, trying to pay bills, and not feel that their great need is that we will stand before God and we will give an account and that once someone is guilty, that person cannot dig himself out of guilt by his or her own efforts. No matter how great we look through health or volunteerism or a positive attitude or our connections, that's what people are. Now, what is the gospel? By the way, that was the bad news. Now, hopefully this gets more enjoyable now. What's the, what, what's the gospel? Look in verses 17 and 21. And alas, I can't preach the next five hours on those two verses. But it would not be hard because they're loaded. I just want to make really one observation from both those verses about what the gospel is. Look in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Then look down at verse 21, which is one of the greatest verses about the gospel you could ever learn or memorize. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, he's talking about Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what did verse 17 and verse 21 both tell us about the gospel? Here's what they both told us. If your faith is in Jesus Christ... Here's your condition. It's not just that, oh, in the same way that all kinds of people have their religious traditions and their leaders and they learn the way of their teacher, that's not what Christians have. If your faith is in Him, and Paul loves this expression, then you're in Him. You're united to Him. And it's a mystery what that means, but it's something like if you've got a tree and you graft a branch into the tree that wasn't naturally in the tree, but you graft it in, the tree brings it in, that what happens is that what's true of that tree becomes true of that branch. It's in the tree. That what the tree has, the branch gets. If you're in Christ, what He has, you get. And here's the amazing thing. Verse 17 and verse 21 both said this. If you're in Christ, it's not just that your doing changes. Although it does. But He changes your being. It's not not that a believer in Jesus goes, Wow, now I have the opportunity to live like someone who's a new creation. That's not what the New Testament says. It says if you're in Christ, you are. The old has gone. The new has come. In Christ 
It's not that, man, maybe over the years and decades, I can attain to the righteousness of God. It says, if you're in Christ, you become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. Then Paul says this in verse 19. He says this message, this good news. What does he call it? Verse 19. In Christ, there's that expression again, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The gospel, the good news, is that people who were under a guilty sentence, who deserve justice from God, who were at odds with God, are reconciled to him. Now, the word reconcile is dominant here, but I want to use a different word just so this will connect, I hope. And that's the word reunion. Now, those are not exactly synonyms. But think about this. You know, these video clips that you see online and sometimes on the news of um, parents coming back from Afghanistan or Iraq who surprised their children, okay, they are wearing me out. I cannot keep my crud together. When I watch these, there is just something about when, in fact, I, the, the most recent one I saw, there was a, a girl and she won, um, she won some contest where she got to throw out the opening ball at a baseball game. And unbeknownst to her, the catcher is dad. Huh, uh, it's about to cry telling to you. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, when, when these children go to that parent, it's, like, it's not just a hug, it's just a Velcro hug. Okay, that... I mean, I don't care if you are in the dumps. You watch that, it, it just cuts through the layers if you're a human being. That is a reunion, but that's what the reconciliation is like that Paul's talking about. And if you're sitting here right now and you're saying, well... I like what you're saying, but I, I don't know. Are, are you being sentimental? I would remind us of the parable of the prodigal son and what that father did. That when he saw his bad son, what did he do? He ran to him, and Judean men in the first century did not run. He hikes up his tunic, and he runs down the road... And he is that Velcro hug and covers him with kisses and says, put the ring on his finger and the cloak and kill the fattened calf because my lost son is found. He was dead and now he's alive. That's who God is. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, God can help me be a better person. No. The gospel is God can change my very being and identity in Christ and I'm reconciled to Him. And it's not the reconciliation of angry siblings like, tell your brother you're sorry, I'm sorry. It's the the reunion, the Velcro hug. That's the gospel. So what is evangelism? Well, first off, look in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Evangelism is not big-hearted Christians making it happen. 
evangelism is Christians speaking on behalf of the great evangelist. And the great evangelist is the Lord. He's the one that when sin first entered the world, comes into the garden, he knows exactly what's happened because he's God and he knows everything. And he's the one who starts out not by screaming at them, by saying, where are you? And what is he already doing? He is playing the role of the evangelist to draw them out. The evangelist speaks on behalf of the great evangelist. It does not originate with us. What else? And this is so... I mean, this is why we're ending on this one, and this is our sermon series. Evangelism is, is an act of love. Look in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. When Paul says the love of Christ controls us, how does he mean? Think, like if a member of downtown Presbyterian lost a family member and the church really you know, gave an outpouring of love to this family, if, if that church member then said, you know, during that time we really experienced the love of our church, they could mean two things. They could mean we experienced the love that we were receiving from the church, or they could mean we saw so much kindness, so much love that it really made us love our church. They could mean it either way. So when Paul says the love of Christ controls us, does he mean Christ's love for us? Or does he mean our love back to Christ controls us? And the answer is yes. It's both. It is intentionally double. Because I love Jesus, I love telling people about Him. But what I'm telling them is not, look how much I love Christ. I'm telling them, look how much Christ loves sinners. I love to talk about what I love. For some weird reason, I saved this email and actually found it this week. This is from seven years ago. And it was just so funny to me. I printed it out and threw it in a file. And it was when I was on a, on a listserv of... Uh, there's several people on this list. And somebody sent out an email and said, Hey, I just got approved to buy... This committee approved for me to buy a new uh, laptop. And I've always been PC, but I'm thinking about getting a Mac. What, what, what do y'all think? And one of my friends responded with this. Listen to me. Give ear to my words. I used PC for nine years. Gateway, HP, Dell, always a 15-inch screen. I am also a computer moron. This past year, I bought a Mac PowerBook. I will never go back to PC. Incredibly portable. Took me two days to figure out how to transfer my files. Easy to use. No viruses. Never a system crash. There is no comparison. Let me lead you by the hand into the empire of light. Last sentence is, call me, I will speak to you of these things. (laughs) That is verse 14 with computers. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, I've tried in this series to to leave us with some applications, and then I'm going to end with a quick story, but... uh, and I've said it every week. I just There's 38 things I want to talk about. I'm going to give just a few. 
first off, if you're hearing this going, okay, but I don't know where to start. There's, what, six billion people on earth. I, where, where do you aim first? When Jesus rose from the dead and he was about to ascend into heaven and he kind of gives the marching orders to his apostles, he says, you're going to be my witnesses. And they're standing outside of Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, that's their region, and then Samaria, that's the region to the north, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, what's the principle there? Start close, work out. Probably the first application of the sermon is not, we're moving to Nepal. The first application would be, have I ever had my neighbors? Now, your neighbors may know Jesus Christ and love Him, but they may not. But people that just God has put into my life, that's where we start. That's what people call your spheres of influence, where I already work, I already live. People that have my same interests, we start there. The second thing is this. Let's begin evangelism on our knees. Listen, I I get it. Uh, There's awkwardness to verbalize these weighty things. It's weird. You'd think it'd be less the case in the Bible Belt, and maybe it's more so. But what do you need? Do you need courage? Ask Him. Do you need Him to wake you up to the reality that people are not what they seem? Ask Him. Do you need a door of opportunity to open so that you'll know, yeah, now's the time to invite them over. Now's the time for us to go have coffee. Ask Him. Do you want God to change this person's heart and you're feeling that, well, I cannot change this person's heart. You're right. Ask Him. But let's begin evangelism uh, on our knees. Third thing. We have, and we don't realize it, we have got an incredible tool for evangelism that is wildly underutilized, and it's called hospitality. And as I say that, especially if you're visiting, I I want you to understand me. I'm not talking about a bait and switch where like 20 minutes into the supper, you hand out tracts and go, well, okay, the purpose of this gathering is, and there's an awkward, you know, evangelism present. That's not what I mean. I mean, there's something different about going door-to-door, going through a 10-minute presentation with someone you've never met versus asking someone into your home and sitting around a table and having food and drink, faces close to each other, and actually relating. And maybe that's not where an important conversation is going to take place, but maybe it's a foot in the door. And boy, did Jesus love doing ministry around food. He did. Hospitality. Uh, Fourth thing. As God gives you opportunity to speak about the gospel, my encouragement would be that you speak not so much in the first person as in the third. Meaning, if you want to sound churchy, say this. You know, I'd really gotten away from church and, uh, you know, kind of did the college thing and I hit some bumps there. But then two or three years afterward, I just really felt like something was missing and I got back to church. And I'm so glad I've gotten back to church and I want you to come to our church. I, 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 I. The great testimony is in the third person. Um, He had mercy on me. You know, the guy that had all the demons, that was possessed by demons, and Jesus healed him. He didn't know anything 
Has he ever been to vacation Bible school? Zero times. Knows nothing about theology. And he says, you know, I want, to, I want to follow you, Jesus. Jesus says, no, go back to your home, these cities, and tell them what the Lord did for you. So he just went around. He doesn't know beans. And he goes around and says, the Lord had mercy on me. And it says, everyone was amazed. And if you're scared that you're going to have, maybe God gives you opportunity and you're going to sit with this friend or this coworker, and all of a sudden you get into these big topics and they're going to throw this massive, philosophical, theological question at you that you can't answer. You know what? You don't always have to answer that. But you can say, let me tell you what I know. If God can have mercy on me, He can have mercy on anybody. And now we're on a level playing field. Fifth thing. Um, Evangelizing in the New Testament, that verb almost always involves public proclamation. I would love, if you're here and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and you want others to know Him, I would love for you to bring them. Not so we can get bigger, and we can feel more important, to bring them to a place where they'll hear the same gospel that we hope they are seeing and hearing from you. Let me end with this. Um... And I know I've told this story before, but it just it has been so helpful to me, and I hope it's helpful to you. A guy I knew in Nashville, minister, he was working with a college student in Nashville. And uh, he was a, a church pastor. And this college student became a Christian, and he was in a fraternity. And this pastor was trying to help him understand that, you know, you've got a built-in sphere of influence. You've got this fraternity, these guys you spend all this time with, and we need to start working on what does it look like for you to communicate the gospel to these, your fraternity brothers. So they talked about that and prayed about that. Well, they got back together after a while, and uh, this pastor asked the college student about it, and he, he, he wouldn't do it. He just said, it's, it's so weird, it's so awkward. I know I need to, but I just, I just haven't. And this pastor had the good instincts to say, well, you know what? Christ died for that too. Instead of saying, okay, we've got to get an action plan, we're going to go back... Let's make a personal agreement with each other. He just said, listen, you know what? The gospel is for that too. And they got back together a few weeks later and he found out this guy had started telling all his fraternity brothers about Jesus. And so the pastor said, what's the deal? I mean, like a month ago you were scared to do it. And he said, well, I know. But then that thing that you said about Jesus even forgives you for being scared to tell people about him, I thought that was so awesome I started telling my fraternity brothers about it. So what was he doing? He was spreading the gospel. And I, I wanted to end with that to say, hey, look, if you, if you walk out of here and you look up two months from now and go, I haven't applied a letter of what was said that Sunday, shame is not going to help you. Guilt is not going to help you. Christ died for reluctant evangelists. Christ died for the fear of man. And that's so good, that could actually help, tell you, help you tell someone about him. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, please, we pray not, not in any way, in an um, arrogant way or a condescending way or self-righteous way, 
but in a, in a compassionate way, would you open our eyes to those that we love, those that we work with, those that we're related to, those around us, to see where Christ is not yet known and open doors for us and give us bigger hearts. And as we stub our toes, as we fall over our words, as we feel intimidated, help us to go back to you, Lord Jesus, and find that you have made us the righteousness of God. You have made us new creations. That we have your love, we have your reconciliation, and we can step back out with that good news. And we ask this in your name. Amen.